Continuing to listen to the Crusades through Muslim eyes, which can be accessed at islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. Salahuddin sends messengers to the left and right flanks, commanding Gukburi and Takiuddin to sweep around the enemy and block them from leaving the plain. He watches from his tent at Kafir Sapt as the two flanks of the Muslim army that have been restrained from engaging the Christians pour out onto the plain, attacking the Christians from the rear and the flank. Mamluks, Syrians, Turks at full gallop, relentless, wave after wave of colored banners and flashing steel. While the left wing of the Muslim army engages the length of the column, the right wing of the agile cavalry led by Taki Uddin overtake the Christian vanguard, barring their approach to Hatin and safety. Nightfall approaches, and Ramon is forced to make camp with the rest of the Christian army. He knows the end is near. Salahuddin has successfully completed his first mission to keep the Christian army imprisoned on the plain, away from water. The night brings no rest to the Crusaders. From under the cover of darkness emerge scorpions and huge tarantulas that crawl into the clothing of the Christians, biting them. The Muslims keep up a steady shower of arrows all night. The thoughts of the Christians are dominated by their thirst for water. The morale in the Christian camp varies. The knights and the lords hold on to their faith dearly to sustain their hopes for the morrow. But the rank and file of the army's miserable. They blame their leaders for dragging them into this accursed battle, and they wonder if they will ever see their homes again. Although the Muslims feel victory is near, Salahuddin knows the knights are becoming increasingly desperate, and at some point, they will resort to their most devastating weapon, the mounted charge. Champion knights such as Balian of Ibelin and Gerard of Riedfort and the demonic Renald of Châtillon must not be allowed to escape and regroup. Morning light was certainly not welcome in the Christian camp. The Muslim camp came to life, ready for the fight to the finish, unlike their Christian counterparts. The Crusaders formed their usual three blocks, led by Ramon at the front, King Guy in the center, and Balian at the rear. Unknown to the Christians, overnight a volunteer regiment had packed brushwood along the left flank. Now the firewood is alight, and hot ash and smoke begin to glow into their faces. The blaze is intense. It merely multiplies their thirst for water. Smoke is everywhere. Through the haze emerge the Muslim cavalry. Their blades cut, their arrows pierce, and then they mount away, only to reappear moments later. The crusaders break their organized ranks and split into three parties. The majority of the nobles and the knights, including the Templars and the Hospitallers, mass around King Guy. They pitch a tent, creating a rallying point on top of the horns of Hattin. But Raymond believes there is no wisdom in staying put anymore. He summons the knights of Antioch and Sidon. They concentrate around him into a tightly packed unit and charge downhill at the Muslim legions. Takiyuddin decides not to take them head on. Instead, his agile horsemen simply swing out of the way, allowing Ramon's forces to sail past them downhill and out of the battlefield. 
the Muslim army surrounds the horns of Hattin. There are still hundreds of knights, and they have taken the advantage by occupying higher ground. This is the decisive moment. They gather their numbers together and charge. But the charge is not aimed at a way out, but at Saladin himself. Saladin's face turns ashen gray, and he pulls at his beard. Surely, the battle cannot turn against the Muslims at this point. Salahuddin's Mamluks rally around him, absorbing, resisting the force of the knights, pushing them back from whence they came. But the knights charge once again. This time, the Christians make it to Salahuddin's tent. The Sultan draws his sword and joins the fight. Not far away, Takiyuddin and his horse archers have surrounded the bishops of Lida and Accra, guarding the true cross. Takiyuddin orders his troops to abandon their bows and engage the enemy in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The iron ring guarding the relic begins to dwindle, and Takiyuddin bursts through the defenses, holding the true cross aloft. This is the final blow to many of the Christians. It seems that God has forsaken them. The relic had been born into battle on all the famous occasions of the kingdom's history since 1099. Thousands of Christian warriors had given their lives to preserve it. The loss of the true cross symbolized the fall of the kingdom as no other event could. But Salahuddin is not content until the red tent of the Christian king falls to the ground. He stands vexed and anxious, unwilling to join in the celebrations of his young son until a mujahid finally cuts through the tent ropes and the red cloth floats to the floor. Salahuddin dismounts from his horse and prostrates himself to Allah. Not far away, King Guy sinks to the ground, throwing his sword away, covering his head with his arms. Virtually the entire leadership of the kingdom, except for three, Ramon of Tiberias, Balian of Ibelin, and Jocelyn de Courtenay has fallen into Salahuddin's hands. The Sultan's sense of honor prevails over his actions. Standing on the burning sands in the middle of the desert, he presents a goblet of ice water to Guy, a symbol from one king to another that kings do not kill each other. But Guy passes the goblet to Renault. Salahuddin points out that he has not offered the water to Renald. He accuses Renald of breaking his oaths. Renald replies, his arrogance unabated. I did only what princes have always done. I followed the well-trodden path. Salahuddin contains his anger and leaves his tent for a while. He returns, bluntly offers Renald conversion to Islam, something he knew the old crusader would take as an insult. Renald refuses, and Salahuddin strikes him on the shoulder with his sword, cutting deeply into his neck. Renald falls to his knees. A guard completes the execution by severing his head with his sword. Salahuddin's not done with the crusaders yet. He had all the remaining Templars and hospitalers executed, saying, I wish to purify the land of these two monstrous orders, whose practices are of no use, who will never renounce their hostility and will render no service as slaves, but are all that is worst in this infidel race. Chapter 13 Jerusalem Liberated 
Although the Sultan had his eyes on a number of cities such as Ascalon and Tyre, his fervent desires were linked to Jerusalem itself. For which Muslim would not wish to say to his Creator on Judgment Day, I fought to free Jerusalem, or better still, I died a martyr, fighting for the freedom of Jerusalem. Salahuddin sent a message to the Christians. I believe that Jerusalem is the house of God, as you also believe, and I will not willingly lay siege to the house of God or put it to the assault. Even though the outcome was clearly inevitable, the Sultan put forward a proposal of unprecedented generosity. Inhabitants who desired to leave could do so with all of their personal property. Christian places of worship would be respected. Those who wished to visit the city in the future could do so unmolested. But to his surprise, the inhabitants of the city responded arrogantly. Deliver Jerusalem, the town where Jesus had died? Out of the question. The city was theirs, and they would fight anyone who would try to take it from them. It so happened that Balian of Ibelin, who had commanded the rear guard of the crusader army at Hattin, and who had escaped Hattin with his life, had his wife inside Jerusalem. The knight begged Salahuddin for permission to retrieve his family, and promised not to bear arms against him, and to stay only a single night in the city. The sultan, generous as he always was, agreed. But when Balian entered the city, the inhabitants took him as a sign from God. The city had a handful of knights, and certainly no commander of the caliber of Balian. They begged him to stay and lead the resistance. But Balian, too, was a man of honor. He turned to the sultan, asking him what he should do. The sultan released him from his oath. And since Balian was busy organizing the defense of Jerusalem, the sultan had his wife escorted out of the city of Jerusalem to her home in Tyre. Although this act appears incredibly generous, some may believe this act to be a bit rash. After all, how could the sultan willingly strengthen his enemies at the expense of the Muslims? But a closer look at the situation reveals there was only minimal risk that Balian could do anything at all, other than put up a symbolic resistance. The defenders consisted of a handful of knights and a few hundred townspeople with no military experience. Against their efforts was the massive juggernaut that was the Muslim army. The resistance was relatively meager indeed. Also, the sultan had contacts inside the city among the orthodox priests that promised to throw open the doors if necessary. As it happened, the siege was short-lived. The Muslim army managed to open a breach in the northern wall in nine days. Balian presented himself in front of the sultan to negotiate terms. The sultan was intractable. He had already given the Christians an opportunity to negotiate conditions, but now that the Muslims had already won the battle and the city was theirs, what was there to negotiate? And yet the sultan's incorrigible generosity urged him to show kindness, to set a precedent in stark contrast to the crusaders that had so violently raped and pillaged the city. Salahuddin's advisers were familiar with the sultan's propensity to forgive, even when it was not deserved. They begged the sultan to, at the very least, obtain financial compensation from the Franks in exchange for their freedom. The price of freedom was ten dinars for every man, five for every woman, and one for every child. Balian agreed in principle, but he made a plea for the poor, who could not afford even such meager sums. 
he asked the sultan to release 7,000 of the poor for 30,000 dinars. The sultan accepted over the furious objections of his advisers. Satisfied, Balian ordered his men to put down their arms. On Friday the 27th of Rajab, 583, according to the Islamic calendar, or the 2nd of October, 1187, the Muslim army entered Jerusalem. There was no massacre, no plunder, no raping, and no pillaging. The Frankish cross on the Dome of the Rock was removed, and Al-Aqsa was once again a place of worship. Salahuddin, surrounded by his companions, went from sanctuary to sanctuary, weeping, praying, prostrating. Outside, the rich families of Jerusalem were selling their houses, businesses, and furniture to Orthodox and Jacobite Christians that planned to stay on. Thousands of the poor were gathering at the gates to beg for coins. Al-Adil, Salahuddin's brother, asked Salahuddin to free 1,000 of the poor without payment of any ransom. The Frankish patriarch followed his request with the plea for another 700. Balian asked for another 500. They were all freed. Then Salahuddin announced that all old people would be allowed to leave without payment and that imprisoned men with young children the same. Frankish widows and orphans were not only exempted from payment, but they were also offered gifts before they left. Salahuddin's treasurers were in utter despair, but their despair turned to rage when they saw the Patriarch of Jerusalem lead numerous chariots of gold, carpets, and all sorts of precious goods out of the city. The historian Imaduddin al-Isfahani turned to Salahuddin and said, This patriarch is carrying off riches worth at least 200,000 dinars. We gave them permission to take their personal property with them, but not the treasures of the churches and the convents. You must not let them do it. But Salahuddin answered, We must apply the letter of the accords we have signed, so that no one will be able to accuse the believers of having violated their treaties. On the contrary, Christians everywhere will remember the kindness that we have bestowed upon them. And thus, after 88 years, the city of Jerusalem returned to the fold of Islam. The Qadi of Damascus, Muhi al-Din ibn Zaki, rose to the pulpit, his voice powerful yet trembling with emotion. Glory to Allah, who has bestowed this victory upon Islam, and who has returned this city to the fold after a century of perdition. Honor to this army, which he has chosen to complete the reconquest. Chapter 14. Conclusion. One simply cannot avoid making parallels between the situation of the Muslims today and that of the Muslims during the First Crusade. Today, the Muslim nation is split into pieces, each piece proclaiming itself to be a nation in its own right, and each nation's leader claiming to be a king. But the power of these Ridwans and Dukaks is a mere illusion, and like their predecessors, their thoughts are dominated. By their petty conflicts. And in the shadows hide many a sect, like the assassins, weaving their treacherous plots, laying their traps, waiting patiently for the opportunity to strike down any glimmer of hope for the Ummah. Today we suffer like our brethren before us. Rivers of blood flow once again in the Al-Quds. 
the scenes of Antioch and Ma'ara are being replicated in the lands of Islam from China to North Africa. The words of Abu Sa'd al-Harawi ring true today as they did the day they were first uttered. How dare you slumber in the shade of complacent safety, leading lives as frivolous as garden flowers, while our brothers have no dwelling place save the saddles of camels and the bellies of vultures? Blood has been spilled, beautiful young girls have been shamed, and must now hide their sweet faces in their hands. Never have the Muslims been so humiliated. Never have their lands been so savagely devastated. But what is our response to the words of al-Harawi? It is a confused silence. For an even greater calamity has befallen us. A war of ideas is being waged. Its objective is to lay a fog of confusion around our mind, to prevent us from recognizing the path of truth from amongst the many lies woven around it. For the discerning believer, the true path stands out clearly. For the pages of history do not lie. The Muslim nation had turned away from its religion when the Crusaders invaded, and so Allah fulfilled His promise and put the fear of the Crusaders in the hearts of the Muslims. So they fled to the farthest corners of their lands to escape humiliation, but their fate pursued them and then slew them regardless. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, The people will soon summon one another to attack you, as people, when eating, invite others to share their food. Someone asked, Will that be because of our small numbers at that time? He replied, No, you will be numerous at that time, but you will be froth and scum like that carried down by a torrent of water, and Allah will take the fear of you from the breasts of your enemy and cast al-Wahan into your hearts. Someone asked, O messenger of Allah, what is al-Wahan? He replied, Love of the world and dislike of death. However, Allah has promised this Ummah victory, and for this He brought great men to raise the flag of Islam. They sought the power and the might of Allah with sincerity and humility, and then Allah took away fear of the Crusaders from the hearts of the Muslims, and put fear of the Muslims in the hearts of their enemies, and the tide of the battle turned dramatically. This is the true path. This is the Sunnah of Allah. Allah, the Most High, says in the Quran, Have you not seen the end of those who were before you? Surely the way of Allah will not change, nor in the way of Allah will be alteration. In the accounts of history, we recognize those to whom Allah grants victory, whether it be Nuruddin Zengi, Salahuddin Ayubi, or even Sultan Muhammad Pati as we described in our previous presentation on the conquest of Constantinople. They are all crafted from the same mold. We can easily distinguish them from the many impostors that call to themselves instead of Allah. The sincere leaders surround themselves with the true scholars of Islam, and they strive to implement every sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad. Peace be upon him. Their lack of concern for their own well-being manifests itself in their austere lifestyle but their hearts are full of compassion and tolerance for the poor and the downtrodden. Their souls seek comfort in the long prostration in the middle of the night and in the clashing of swords in the heat of battle. These are the kinds of men that cleanse the Ummah by educating the masses. They rid the nation of Islam, 
of its Ridwans and Dukaks, and they are the ones that liberate Jerusalem. These are the heroes of Islam. May Allah accept their deeds and grant them the highest level of paradise. Amin. Rabbana afrigh alayna sabran wa thabbit aqdamana wa ansurna ala al-qawmil kafirin. Our Lord, bestow on us endurance, establish our feet firmly, and give us help against those that resist faith. Islamic Legacy It is within these pages of history that we find the Sunnah of Allah. These are the rules that shape previous, current, and future events taking place across the world. History teaches us lessons and morals about the past. Islamic Legacy is a project run by Muslims for Muslims. The aim of this project is to present history from an Islamic or Muslim-centric perspective rather than a Eurocentric one. This presentation is titled The Crusades Through Muslim Eyes. That is it for today. Please remember to leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to remember to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Please join our Islamic Audio Bytes community on Instagram and Twitter and follow me on Facebook as well. Do check out our website at islamicaudiobytes.com and if you would like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb 7 at gmail.com. Hope your day is full of goodness. Asalaamu Alaikum.